to episode 35. As always, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to spend a little time with my ramblings about all things movie-related, past, present, and future. Hopefully you'll enjoy this next batch of episodes that are going to be focusing on the Academy Awards season, past, present, and future. If you listened to the recent trailer that I put out about a week ago, then you probably already know this, but if not, the long and short of it is, is that with the official announcement of the 2021 Academy Award nominations right now slated for Tuesday, February 8th, now's as good a time as any to get hyped for it by looking back at Oscar-winning and Oscar-nominated films from past years. And if this is an approach to the Oscars that works for you, then we can do the same next year at this time and go on for as long as we darn well feel like it. So starting here and now with episode 35, each episode going into Oscar night this year, we'll revisit a different Oscar season by focusing on that year's Best Picture winner, as well as one of the other nominated films. Which nominated film is all up to you. The idea is that you vote in the weekly poll that I put up on Facebook on the Silver Screeners group, Twitter at FilmBuff1974, Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or you can email frankmendoza at yahoo.com, and whichever non-winning nominated film gets the most votes is the one. We'll be following the same format for each episode with a few tweaks. First will be the spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of each film. After that will come the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each film. Then comes a new segment called The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous. One or two memorable moments from that particular year's Oscar ceremony. I'm stealing that title from myself, since that's the title of my Academy Awards program. 2022 marks 10 years that I've been giving film lectures at different places around Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and my one on the history of the Oscars is indeed called The Academy Awards, The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous. Out on the heels of The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous is the tried and true trivia segment involving all of you listeners. And then we'll close out with a preview of the next episode's poll options, the next batch of films for you to choose from. That just leaves one last burning, flaming question. Which Oscar seasons are we going to be looking at? Let's douse those fires and say that it seems like a good idea to space them out in five-year increments. Logic would dictate that for a nice round number, 50 years ago, the 1971 season is a viable launching point. You know, start with 71 then on to 76, then 81, 86, and so forth, right up to and including 2016, which was five Oscar go-rounds ago. But the thing is, the best picture winner of 1971, 50 years ago, was the crime thriller The French Connection, which was already covered back in episode 19 of this podcast. I had paired it up with the Steve McQueen action flick Bullet, so if you'd rather use 50 years ago as a starting point for a nice clean round number, then hey, why not make your listening to this right now a double feature? Go back and listen to episode 19, and then come back here and enjoy a look at today's featured year, 1976. And anyone who's listening who wasn't around for, or maybe doesn't remember the 70s or the 80s, if you happen to be saying to yourself, sweet lord, old movies, nah, (laughs) not my bag, then may I respectfully offer up to you the words of actress Lauren Bacall. If this isn't your first time listening to this show, then you know what's coming. She once said, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So again, let me thank you for clicking that little triangle that points to the right to join me on this journey back to 1976, the year that saw the Best Picture Academy Award go to Rocky. And in addition to Rocky, after tallying up the votes on Facebook and Twitter and the gram and email, the overwhelming majority of you went for Taxi Driver. So there we go to 1976 Oscar-nominated films for today's episode. 
But there were a couple of votes for all the president's men and network, so because I want to please everybody, I'll throw in a couple of bonus fun facts about those at the end as well. I aim to please. So let's get going and rewind to 45 years ago, back to early 1977 for the 1976 Oscar season, for the spoiler-free plot setups. Back in episode 19, the one that focused on the French connection, we talked about the seismic cultural shift going on in the late 60s and into the 70s, how it became the in thing to rebel against everything that you had ever been taught was right and to try out and to dive into what you were always taught was wrong or indecent. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, as they said back then. Indulging in personal freedoms, political, social, sexual. You had hippie communes, peace marches, drug use, sexual experimentation, getting yourself a little more seasoned, or hell, just turning into a friggin' spice rack. Just breaking away from the norm, questioning and defying authority. The war in Vietnam was ongoing, the riots and public clashes with the National Guard. Check out last year's Netflix movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7, to catch my drift. Speaking of Oscar nominations... The number of assassinations of public leaders mounted, and eventually the movies began to reflect the growing cynicism and disillusionment of the times. New kinds of films chewed up the taboos and spit them out. The studios were losing creative control for a little while as more directors, the first generation that went to film school, they began calling more of the shots, literally and figuratively. And this era in filmmaking came to be known as the New Hollywood. Taxi Driver is one of the seminal films at the peak of the new Hollywood. But as with any trend, the negative attitudes of the times, seen in the likes of Mean Streets and Five Easy Pieces, MASH, Dog Day Afternoon, The Conversation, that negativity began to fall out of favor with the arrival of a new trend. Stories of scrappy underdog heroes conquering the odds to achieve something meaningful. Look at Luke Skywalker, look at... Superman, for example. By 1976, this dichotomy of pessimism and optimism, looking at the U.S. as the land of opportunity as well as the land of disappointments, that came to the forefront with today's two films, both centering on a scrappy underdog, a misfit, someone looking for validation, for a sense of purpose, reassurance that he matters, that his life means something. Rocky Balboa, played by Sylvester Stallone, and Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro. First up is Rocky, the Best Picture Oscar winner, a crowd-pleaser that spawned seven follow-up films and counting. It was released in the U.S. and Canada on December 3rd and in much of the rest of the world throughout 1977. Directed by John G. Avildsen, based on an original screenplay by Sylvester Stallone. It stars Stallone, Talia Shire, Burt Young, Burgess Meredith, all Oscar-nominated for their performances, by the way, as well as Kyle Weathers as Apollo Creed. So this one kicks off with an overcooked but rousing sense of good old American hullabaloo. No sooner does the MGM line stop roaring than the iconic score kicks in to the sight of nothing. Just a black screen with huge-ass white letters in all caps, gliding from right to left. And what do they spell? A title card tells us it's November 25, 1975 in Philadelphia. And what's the first thing we see to go along with this musical score that plops patriotism down on us like a hot potato? Is it Apollo Creed's steady, capable glove tearing Rocky's nose off? Is it Stallone jumping up and down in victory, holding lit spackles in his hands at the top of that flight of stairs? No. It's a mural of Christ. 
like Jesus Christ, the guy from the Bible. He's holding up the Eucharist, because somber religious imagery and bloodily beating your opponent's snot out of two peas in a pod. So this is our introduction to Rocky Balboa. He's a local boxer in the ring at Mickey's Gym with another ne'er-do-well by the name of Spider. Rocky and Spider, they go at it with the crowd cheering them on. Spider headbutts Rocky and knocks him down. Rocky gets up and beats the piss out of Spider. The fight's over. Rocky puts on his robe, and we see written on it on the back, the Italian Stallion. Funny, that was never my nickname. I mean, Cosa Diavolo, which, if you don't speak Italian, that means what the hell. Cut to the locker room. He and Spider both square up their locker rental fees, and the opening credits begin as Rocky walks down the street at nighttime heading home. He greets his pet turtles, puts on a record of jazz music. There's a poster of Rocky Marciano prominently displayed on his wall, and he lies down with an ice pack on his head. Next morning, he waltzes into a pet shop. Adrian Panino, played by Talia Shia, she's behind the counter. He tries talking to her about food for his turtles. A pretty common pickup line. She's unresponsive, quiet, timid, insecure. Her manager tells her to go to the basement to clean up the cat cages, so there's an easy out of this social situation for the patty animal. The next day, we find out how Rocky makes a few bucks to keep food on his turtle's table and his torn tank tops on his back. He collects debts for a small-time loan shack named Gazo. He intimidates. He taps a piece of lumber against his open palm. He manhandles. When he returns to Mickey's gym, it looks like his locker that he's had for six years has been turned over to someone else, another boxing contender. Mickey, played by Burgess Meredith, tells him in no uncertain terms that he runs a business, not a soup kitchen, that Rocky is not a viable contender anymore, that Mickey's got to go where the money is, basically that Rocky is a bum. We then meet Adrian's brother, Polly, played by Burt Young. Rocky tells him, hey, yo, Polly, your sister's giving me the shoulder. But Polly just insists that Adrian's a loser and that she's pushing 30, and if she's not careful, she's going to end up dying alone. He invites Rocky over to Thanksgiving dinner the next day, and Rocky accepts with a, hey, yo, yeah. Then Rocky has a drink at a local watering hole. He and the bartender, they're watching the TV, and that's where they first lay eyes on Apollo Creed, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, played by Kyle Weathers. Creed's being interviewed, and he looks right into the camera and tells the kids watching at home, go be a doctor, be a lawyer, carry a leather briefcase. Don't go into sports as a profession. It'll make you grunt and smell. Think, don't stink. Rocky leaves the bar, heads home, walks past a gang of teenage hoodlums, including a 12-year-old girl named Marie he knows. He asks her if her brother knows that she's hanging out with these guys, pulls her away from them, and walks her home trying to get through to her. He tries in a very Rocky Balboa-type pep talk to get her to have some respect for herself, hang out with a better crowd, don't give yourself a bad reputation. They reach her place, and she gives him this patting shot. Screw you, creepo. She goes in, and he walks away, sparring with no one in particular, saying dejectedly to himself, yeah, who are you to give advice, creepo? Who are you? Meanwhile, over in New York City, Apollo Creed finds out from his promoter that his opponent for the upcoming New Year's Day fight has a hand injury. So Creed's idea is to give a local underdog fighter, an unknown, the opportunity of a lifetime. He says, "'Cause I'm sentimental. This is the land of opportunity, right? There's nothing the people of this country would like better than to see Apollo Creed give a local Philadelphia boy a shot at the greatest title in the world on this country's biggest birthday.'" He means 1976, the bicentennial, 200 years of the good old U.S. of A. They all grin at each other, they shake hands, and you don't need to be the amazing Kreskin to see where the story is going. He wants to go for Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion. He boldly proclaims, It's the name, the media would eat it up. Who discovered America? An Italian, right? What would be better than to get it on with one of his descendants? 
We'll just leave that one right there. So, end of round one, as we climb out of the ring and hail a cab to get to Taxi Driver, the Oscar runner-up according to your votes. It was released in the U.S. on February 9th, before going global throughout the rest of the year and into 1977, based on an original screenplay by Paul Schrader, directed by Martin Scorsese, and stars Robert De Niro, Sybil Shepard, Jodie Foster, and Javi Keitel. You know, there are two kinds of movies, those you can fold laundry by and those you can't. This one, you most decidedly cannot. It's bleak. It's disturbing, it's offensive, it's mind-opening, it's brilliant. And it also somehow managed to survive a spate of unwanted negative press five years after it came out when a lone gunman, whose name I won't say, I don't want to give violent criminals the spotlight they seek, he shot and almost killed U.S. President Ronald Reagan in 1981 after stalking the film's co-star Jodie Foster on her college campus in Connecticut. But more on that after you hear a little bit about the film. From the very first frame, you know that you need to buckle up for pretty intense ride. The opening shot is a close-up of a taxi cab slowly driving towards the camera, then veering off to the left in the middle of a disgusting amount of exhaust fumes. An ominous musical score plays, and it's done by Bernard Herrmann, who also composed Hitchcock's Vertigo and Psycho. There are definite parallels, both musical and visual, to Vertigo throughout Taxi Driver, and I'm gonna guess that's no accident. Both are portraits of alienated asocial men, neither one of them playing with a full set of bocce balls. After the opening shot of the cab, there's a dissolve to a close-up of the eyes of Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro, and in the first visual parallel to Vertigo, two flashes of red light cross De Niro's face, then two flashes of white, then two of blue. And I'm sorry, but if the choice of red, white, and blue in the downbeat context of the sight of this tense, unsettling face is coincidental, then I'm Santa Claus. Bickle's driving through New York City past neon signs and marquees, gas stations, traffic lights. We get dissolves to a couple of tracking shots of pedestrians, slow motion and point of view shots of the rain on his windshield. Fittingly, it's nighttime, before it all goes back to his eyes bathed in red. More exhaust fumes fill up the entire screen as we transition to a shot of a man sitting in the taxi depot. Then Bickle steps into the foreground of the frame from the right with Bickle T on the back of his coat. He's there to ask for work as a taxi driver. He's looking for the overnight shift because he's unable to sleep at night. The guy says to him they have porno theaters for that, and Bickle replies, yeah, I know, I tried that. After a quick awkward silence, the guy asks him what he does now, and Bickle tells him, ride around, nights mostly, subways, buses. Figure I'm going to do that, I may as well get paid for it. He asks Bickle about his driving record, and with a seemingly condescending smirk on his face, Bickle says, real clean, like my conscience. The man's less than amused and comes back at him with, you gonna break my chops? I got enough trouble with guys like you. Defiance of authority. Bickle just keeps smirking and chuckling and says, sorry, sir, I didn't mean that. And as the words come out of his mouth, the camera zooms in closer to his face. The camera work in this movie is incredible. The zoom-ins, the zoom-outs, they are just so smooth. They just glide, and they just follow characters. It's like a zoom-in and then a tracking shot all in one. We then have expository dialogue. He's 26, he's in good physical health, honorably discharged from the Marines in 1973. He's given some forms, and he's told to fill them out and bring them back the next day. He leaves, and there's a long shot of him walking down the sidewalk towards the camera, reaching into his jacket, pulling out a bottle, taking a swig from it. Presumably, it was in his jacket during the whole job interview. Back at his seedy apartment, his voiceover narration tells us what he's writing in his journal. May 10th, 
Thank God for the rain, which has helped wash away the garbage and the trash off the sidewalks. I'm working long hours now, six in the afternoon to six in the morning, sometimes eight, six, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. More tracking shots of the city streets follow, a good retroactive travelogue of the grime and the shadiness of the New York City of the 1970s. Unsavory-looking characters parade around outside. He comments on how all the animals come out at night, whores and dopers and junkies, and a few choice pieces of terminology that I'm not going to repeat here. And he repeats how someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. Then he gets a customer. Into the cab climbs a hooker, and one of her tricks, and I don't mean she pulls a coin out of his ear. He's sullen and silent as he cleans out the cab interior back in the depot later on. Next thing he does is walk down the sidewalk in a shot that parallels the first time he did this. He takes a swig from a bottle, again. Then he turns to his right and enters a porno theater. After an unsuccessful attempt to make pleasant small talk with the woman behind the candy counter, he buys a few candy bars and a Coke, all for a whopping dollar eighty-five. He takes his seat, and it's showtime. The voiceover returns with, 12 hours of work, and I still can't sleep. Damn. The days go on and on, and they don't end. Then there's a cut to a shot of him back home in bed, and he goes on, All my life needed was a sense of some place to go. I don't believe that one should devote his life to morbid self-attention. A little late for that, dog, but okay. Dizzying handheld shots of a crowd of people in broad daylight once again in the city streets make way for the first significant plot point. His brooding voice goes on to say, I first saw her at Palantine Campaign headquarters at 63rd and Broadway. She was wearing a white dress. She appeared like an angel out of this filthy mass. It's a woman named Betsy, played by Sybil Shepard. She works on the campaign of this presidential candidate, but she pronounces his name Palantine. Bickle pronounces it Palantine, she pronounces it Palantine. I don't know if that's a film flub or if it's deliberate, kind of like an indication of his detachment from the world. Either way, he sits in his cab at the entrance and just watches her. She notices, she mentions it to a co-worker. The co-worker goes outside to tell Bickle to leave before he calls the cops. Bickle just zooms off like a bat out of hell. The Betsy character is pretty significant in the events that unfold. So is an underage prostitute named Iris, played by a young Jodie Foster as well as a slimy, degenerate pimp named Sport, played by Javi Keitel. And what the hell, throw in Peter Boyle, years before everybody loves Raymond, as a fellow taxi driver named Wizard, and now we're talking Martin Scorsese in peak form. So let's put taxi driver in neutral, stop with the plot setups, because now it's time to pivot towards the spoiler alert as we dive into the behind-the-scenes fun facts. So proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies, including plot spoilers and the endings, are going to come fast and furious. So, spoiler alert, now. Alright, so what was up behind the scenes with Rocky? Number five. Sylvester Stallone said that he wrote Rocky in response to all of the negativity in the country at the time. The protests, the riots, the political turmoil, the oil and energy crisis, the recession, the bleakness reflected in pop culture. In fact, he was quoted as saying, where are all the heroes? And speaking of heroics, the original draft of the script had Rocky losing the match just as he does in the final version. But instead of Adrian proudly throwing herself against his blood-splatted, sweat-soaked body for a big climactic embrace, he deliberately throws the match, takes the cash, and uses it to open up a pet store for her to give her the chance to go into business for herself. The closing shot would have been the two of them holding hands and walking out of the arena together and ending with a freeze frame. 
That image you can still see in some versions of the movie poster. Check it out on Google. Number four. How's this for a casting could have been? For the role of Rocky, the studio wanted to go with James Caan, Burt Reynolds, or maybe even Ryan O'Neill. But Stallone held his ground and said that he wouldn't sell them his screenplay unless he could play the character. As for Adrian, Susan Sarandon was considered, but was ultimately deemed, quote, too sexy, end quote. Bette Midler was offered the part, but she declined. So at the last minute, Talia Shire, fresh off her supporting actress Oscar nomination for The Godfather 2, auditioned, got the role, and wound up with a second nomination, this time in the leading category. Number three. You ever wonder why the climactic match was so dark, why you couldn't see much of the audience? I'll tell you why. About 4,000 people showed up to be extras at the filming location, the Los Angeles Sports Arena. It has a capacity of 8,000, so it was half empty. To keep the emptiness away from perceptive audience eyes, the lights were down, and stock shots of Madison Square Garden in New York City were inserted. Probably helped that the 4,000 who were there had good reason to be. They were all given a free chicken dinner. Number two. One of Stallone's sources of inspiration for the story was Chuck Wepner's 1975 title fight with Muhammad Ali. Wepner, that's W-E-P-N-E-R, went by the name The Bayonne Bleeder. He managed to become only the third fighter to actually knock down Ali. Wepner would go on to sue Sylvester Stallone for cashing in on his life story, and they ended up settling out of court. Number one. As for Oscar history, get this. Stallone was nominated for both his screenplay as well as for acting. He became, at the time, only the third person nominated for acting in and writing the same film. The first was Charlie Chaplin for The Great Dictator in 1940, and the second was Orson Welles for Citizen Kane in 1941. Stallone was on the cusp of poverty when he banged the script out. He only had $106 in the bank. But he got 10% of the gross of Rocky, which worked out to roughly $22 million. And in 2011, he became the only actor to be inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame. And as for fun facts about Taxi Driver, let's give that film equal time. Number five. The film was shot on location in New York City in the summer of 1975. The trash and garbage that you see all over the streets and the sidewalks was the real deal. There had been a sanitation worker strike going on at the same time. So all of that refuse that piled up ended up immortalized forever on film. It helped to add to the grim and grungy look that the film was going for. Number four. A casting could have been. Can you picture Jeff Bridges, the big Lebowski himself, as Travis Bickle? Paul Schrader wrote the screenplay a few years before the film was actually made. About a year after he wrote it, the husband and wife producing team of Michael and Julia Phillips read it, and according to Schrader, quote, they liked it, they optioned it with no real prospects in mind. Then I saw the rough cut of Mean Streets. At that point, we were talking about doing Taxi Driver with Robert Mulligan and Jeff Bridges. I was fighting that off because it didn't make any sense to me. Yet it was a deal, and God knows I wanted to see the film made. To Michael and Julia's credit, they were not too keen on this either. I saw Mean Streets and said, that's it, De Niro and Scorsese. They saw it and said, that's it, as well. We never entertained any other possibilities. End quote. Number three. The immortal line. You talking to me? You talking to me? There's no one else here. That was not in the script. There's more than one story about where it came from. 
One story has it that De Niro took it from an underground comedian from the New York club scene. But another story has it that De Niro went to go see Bruce Springsteen perform in Greenwich Village shortly before they began filming the movie. A few people in the audience were apparently calling out to the boss, and he apparently faked humility and called back to them from the stage, You talking to me? If this is indeed the true story, it apparently made an impact on De Niro, and he incorporated it into what has become one of the most famous scenes in cinematic history. You know you made a memorable moment when it's parodied by Robin Williams playing the genie in Aladdin. You talking to me? Did you rub my lamp? Number two. Yep, that is director Martin Scorsese in a small but splashy appearance as an angry, jilted husband who climbs into the back of Bickle's taxi and describes in graphic and gruesome detail how he plans to kill his philandering wife. Originally, another actor from Mean Streets, George Mamoli, was going to do it, but he hurt his back while making another movie and had to bow out. Scorsese stepped in, even though screenwriter Paul Schrader felt that directors should stay behind the camera. But later on, Schrader begrudgingly admitted that, yeah, Scorsese did do well with it. And number one. Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster scored her first Academy Award nomination for playing an underage prostitute here. At this point, she was known primarily for her guest appearances on different TV shows and a run of family-friendly Disney movies like Napoleon and Samantha, One Little Indian, Freaky Friday. She also worked with Scorsese before with a small role in 1974's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. After the career boost that Taxi Driver gave her, she'd go back to the House of Mouse one more time for 1977's Candle Shoe. For Taxi Driver, the producers had her meet with a psychologist from California's Child Welfare Department to make sure that she could mentally and psychologically handle such grim material. A welfare worker also supervised all of her scenes and was on the set. But nothing could prepare anyone involved for what came in March of 1981 when a lone gunman who had become obsessed with Taxi Driver, with the Travis Bickle character, and with Jodie Foster, decided to take it upon himself and assassinate President Ronald Reagan to get her attention and admiration and gain some fame for himself. Reagan survived the attempt, of course, but it left an unwanted, lasting impression on Jodie Foster, as it would anybody. She was actually on a brief hiatus from acting at the time she was going to college. She was a student at Yale, and while she was at Yale, she would get these love letters from this guy in her campus mailbox, and there were even a few phone calls, calls that were recorded. In one of them, she even said to him over the phone that she had a knife in her hand. She fully cooperated with the FBI when they did a follow-up investigation to figure out what the hell happened, but to this day, she refuses to talk about it. She's been known to walk out of interviews if it even comes up. And I say all the power to her. Why feed the monster? And on that happy little pick-me-up, let's lighten the mood even more and go into the good, the bad, and the outrageous. The good, the bad, and the outrageous. All of this information comes straight from Oscars.org, the official site of the Academy Awards. So rest assured, this is a reliable source. When Sylvester Stallone stepped up to the mic at the Academy Awards that evening to present the Best Supporting Actress Oscar, who came creeping up behind him but Muhammad Ali himself? Now, supposedly, Stallone had no idea that he was there, but I personally don't buy that. Which is fine. They're there to entertain. That's what it's all about. Entertainment. Show business. I could be wrong. Ali jokingly kept yelling at him, You stole my script! You stole my story! And they playfully began sparring right there on the stage in their tuxes. Then they shook hands, and Stallone returned to the mic and said, I may not win anything tonight in the form of an Oscar, but standing next to this guy, who's a 100% legend, is something I'll remember for the rest of my life. You can see the whole thing on YouTube. Just type in Muhammad Ali Oscars and feast your eyes. 
And Stallone was right. He personally did not win an Oscar that night. The film got three awards, Best Picture, Best Director for John G. Avildsen, and Best Editing. But Best Leading Actor went to Peter Finch for Network. And as promised, here's the Network fun fact. Finch was the first performer to win a posthumous Oscar. His widow accepted the award for him. And as for the All the President's Men fun fact, Jason Robards won Best Supporting Actor over both Burt Young and Burgess Meredith, who were both nominated in that same category for Rocky. So let's swivel towards the final segment of the show. The trivia segment. And to reiterate, it does not matter when you send in your answer. It does not matter what episode you're listening to and when. If you're listening to an episode from six months ago, if you're listening to this one in six months, doesn't matter. If it's farther back or if it's the most recent one, answer any trivia question at any time. You will get a personalized meme and a shout out no matter what. You got music you want to promote? Got a website, podcast of your own, a book? Say the word and I'm here for you. Now, the last full episode feels like a million years ago, though I only took one week off, but we're in January. I mean, we still had Betty White and Sidney Poitier with us, for God's sake. It's been a couple of weeks, so a reminder of what the trivia question was last time. Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis, real-life mother and daughter, they're both known for the title of Scream Queen. Janet Lee, of course, in Psycho, Jamie Lee Curtis for Halloween, and just about every other slasher movie made between Disco and New Wave. In what campy, lurid, nighttime weekly soap opera? Did they make a guest appearance in Together in the late 1970s? And the answer is the delightfully trashy series, The Love Boat. And sending in their answers were Mary C. and Ed I. Mary and Ed, I hope that your 2022 is off to a great start, and thank you for continuing to listen. Keep your eyes open for those memes coming your way. You're both great. And here is this week's trivia question. So, if you have the answer, if you think you do, if you're not sure if you do, doesn't matter. Send in any old answer. <laughs> I'm not going to be saying, oop, that's wrong, no mention. Send in anything, you'll get a shout-out, you'll get a mention. Here's your question. Jodie Foster, again, was nominated for Supporting Actress for Taxi Driver as a teenager, but the award went to Beatrice Strait for her less-than-ten-minute-long appearance as William Holden's wife in Network. Beatrice Strait would go on to star in a Steven Spielberg-produced 1982 paranormal-themed horror movie as a so-called ghost hunter. Her character's name in this horror flick is Dr. Lesh, L-E-S-H. Name this movie. And I'll give you a hint. I covered this movie way back in episode 6 of this podcast. Send your answers over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on Rocky, Taxi Driver, anything about the 1976 Oscars, just hit me up on my socials, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook. If you're not part of it, what's keeping you? Go ahead and join. Spread the word. The more the merrier. It's public. Or you can email frankmendoza at yahoo.com. As for a preview of what's to come in the next episode, we're moving into 1981, five years later. This is the year that the Academy bestowed the Best Picture Oscar to Chariots of Fire. The other nominees that year were On Golden Pond, starring Henry Fonda and Katherine Hepburn, Raiders of the Lost Ark, starring Harrison Ford and Karen Allen, Reds with Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton, and Atlantic City with Susan Sarandon. And since I covered Raiders of the Lost Ark already back in Episode 8, the poll that you'll be seeing on my socials will ask you to vote from among the remaining three to see which one you all go for. On Golden Pond, Reds, or Atlantic City. And speaking of going for something, 
I just want to take one more minute to give shout-outs to a few podcasts who have been really great ever since I got this one off the ground. It's January, it's a fresh beginning for all of us, and looking back on the past eight or nine months, this has been quite the experience, and I mean that in the best possible sense. And whether they realize it or not, there are people I've connected with, there are podcasts that are out there that really helped me along. So I want to give a big Yo There Adrian style shout out to the following podcasts in no particular order. Davey A's, I'd give that 10 minutes. Stu and Al from the Stu and Al pod. Ian Graham from Cult Connections. Tommy and Shannon Goodwin from Rewatch, Relive, Repeat. Mike Davis from Now This Is Podcasting. There are plenty more that I've been listening to. I can't possibly list them all, but I will get to them. If you all have been guests on this show, and I'd love to have you back anytime, and I've had the pleasure of being a guest myself, check these shows out. Independent podcasters unite. And that wraps up episode 35. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And I'd be very grateful if you could take a second to give the show a rating on Good Pods, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to increase the show's visibility. It helps to boost the algorithms. Or if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, I'll paint your house. Thank you once more for listening. I'm Frank. And until next time, keep on screening. I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the bloody mayhem of the boxing ring.